All right, I want to welcome you to our summer teaching series. It's called The Boys of Summer. We are going to um, cover the 12 minor prophets. We'll be in the Old Testament this summer as we spend Sundays together in the story of Moses, and we spend Wednesday nights together in the story of the minor prophets. My intention is to take one lesson per week and survey each of the 12 minor prophets over the next 12 weeks just what a fool's errand that was as I was preparing this week uh, to try and do uh, 14 chapters of the book of Hosea in one lesson. It's a great discipline, though, because to take the historical context of each of these prophets and to understand the flow of their thought well enough to condense it to a thread that ties it together It's going to be a great discipline for me. I hope it's going to be a profitable summer in some of the more obscure parts of the Bible uh, for the rest of us. I hope that you'll read each of these prophets one a week as we as we go uh, through the summer. Uh, Take Hosea, the the lesson I'm going to teach uh, right now, and uh, and spend some time in the book of Hosea over the next few days, and then we will just follow the twelve prophets in. Bible book order. Next week will be Joel, then after that Amos, and uh, and we'll spend some time in in each of these prophets. And really, I hope look in some parts of Scripture that you may be less familiar with. But but I tell you, in the crazy world that we find ourselves in today, uh, it is remarkable how relevant these prophets are uh, to the world in which we live. So grab your Bible, open it up to the book of Hosea. The minor prophets come after the major prophets. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. Then there's Ezekiel and Daniel. And then we start with Hosea. So we move uh, into the minor prophets with Hosea. Hosea is uh, an interesting story. He is a prophet who uh, very much wore his heart on his sleeve. His book teaches us that sin is not only about breaking the law of God, but that sin actually breaks the heart of God. Hosea is a strange book because God gives an unusual direction. He tells this prophet to go and marry a woman who they both know is not pure, a woman who um, is given to sin. She is an adulterer, uh, very possibly a prostitute, and God uses the marriage of Hosea and the children out of that union, which may the children may or may not have actually been Hosea's children. It is a strange scenario that plays out in which God uses that message of that broken family to illustrate his frustrated relationship with Israel. So, Open your Bibles to the first chapter, and we're going to start with with what I call sin, judgment, and hope. Let's read uh, the first chapter through the first verse of the second chapter. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Now, we'll talk about the historical moment and those kings in, in just a minute. Hosea's marriage and children. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity. 
For the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So he went and married Gomer, daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Loruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the, war, by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, or war, or by horses and cavalry. After Gomer had weaned Loruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said, Name him Loami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, You are not my people, they will then be called sons of the living God. And the Judeans and the Israelites will be together again. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land, for the day of Jezreel will be great. Call your brothers my people and your sister's compassion. Now, strange chapter. Let's talk about this story. Uh, Hosea receives the call of God to be a prophet, but his, his first instruction is to go and marry what is called a woman of promiscuity. That is, this woman who probably has, uh, if not just an adulterous uh, lifestyle, uh, a, a, a prostitute's lifestyle. Obedient to the call of God in this strange request. Now, just a side note here. There are some commentators who try and make the story of Hosea a metaphor, an allegory, uh, whatever, uh, because it bothers them that God would use this kind of circumstance to make a point. And yet, there's nothing in this story that is written in a way to give us a literary clue that it is anything but a historical event that involved the lives of real people. So we're going to take it that way. He married a woman by the name of Gomer as, uh, as an act of obedience to God. And it says she conceived and bore him a son. This is the only one of the three children that is explicitly said that it is Hosea's child. It says that she conceived the second and third child, but it's not tied to Hosea. So that leads some to believe that, that these were illegitimate from, uh, from these uh, immoral relationships that she continued to have even as they were married. That also will play into uh, the imagery of how Israel is treating God who is her bridegroom. Now, he says that with the first child, name him Jezreel. For in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. Now, let me tell you the back, back story of that. Oh, by the way, I, I was going to start with the kings that are mentioned in those first verses. Several kings from Judah. We're at the point in Old Testament history for all of the, the minor prophets where we now have a divided kingdom. You know that when Israel demanded a king, God allowed them to have Saul. Then they had David. Then they had Solomon. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, uh, split the kingdom, ten northern tribes, two southern tribes, and at that point we have a divided, what's called the divided kingdom, and it, it is Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Uh, Israel 
goes down first and eventually because of their bad kings and, and the sin, uh, in 722 BC, Israel is conquered by the Assyrians and they disappear from the pages of history. Judah continues on for about another 140 years and in 586 BC, uh, Judah is uh, carried off into exile by the Babylonians. Um, so, so we'll have different minor prophets that speak to different uh, kingdoms. Hosea was from the south. He was from Judah, but he spoke primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel. It lists the, the kings of Judah, but then it lists Jeroboam, and this is actually Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was probably the longest reigning king over Israel uh, after David. The difference was uh, he was he did not have a heart for God like David, and he went a long way toward moving Israel deeper into uh, into idolatry. He promoted false places of worship because he didn't want his people Israel traveling into Judah where Jerusalem was to the temple he didn't want them going down there because he didn't want them to be drawn to Judah and so he set up false worship places in Israel to try and keep his people the result was Israel's spiritual decline was accelerated under the reign of Jeroboam Hosea appears during this time now he has a child with this prostitute and God says name the first child Jezreel now I told you on Sunday when we preached, when I, when I preached about the name of God, I am who I am, that Hebrew names don't just have, aren't just used as labels. They actually have meaning. Jezreel would have put in mind of everybody who heard the name of that boy, the story of Jezreel. In, in generations before, there was a particularly wicked king by the name of Ahab who was married to one of the God, most godless women in all the pages of Scripture, a woman by the name of Jezebel. Ahab wanted a vineyard that was next door to the palace, uh, a family plot of land that had been owned by the same family for generations. It had been an inheritance from the days of the distribution of the land under Joshua. And that land was owned by uh, uh, a simple citizen. And uh, Jezebel plotted to have him accused and killed. And the king took over that plot of land. This is during the days of Elijah the prophet. In fact, Hosea is preaching in a time, in a, in a, a generation where where the, the, the messages of Elijah and later Elisha would still have been uh, abroad in the land. They were still recent enough that people would have remembered Elijah and Elisha. Hosea is forced to have a child, and he names him Jezreel. Jezreel was the location of that crime against a simple uh, Israelite citizen by the king, and it was a direct cause of God ending that particular dynasty. Now, when Jeroboam, the, the, the king that Hosea was there under, when he died, just to illustrate this rapidly downward spiral of, uh, of Israel, uh, after Jeroboam and his long reign, the next six kings in the history of Israel, a, a, a time span of about 14 years, they had six kings 
in a 14-year in a span, and five of those kings were assassinated, and the throne was taken over by the person who assassinated them. So to try and get a feel for that, uh, imagine in American history if every president except one since uh, since Richard Nixon had been assassinated with the assassin taking over the throne, except for one, there was one king that died in his bed. Uh, the instability politically and spiritually in Israel is devastating. The problem is Assyria is not yet a fully developed superpower. Syria, the other power of the day, is in steep decline. So Israel is in spiritual decline. They're in political uh, a phase of political instability. But because they have no real enemies, they're able to sort of whitewash their own circumstance and live under the illusion that they're doing pretty good. That's the, the world into which Hosea steps as a minister. The first child is named Jezreel. It would have been a reminder that God had said, I will not only judge that line, that dynasty, because of the, of the crimes that occurred in Jezreel, but eventually Israel as a whole will pay for those crimes. Jezreel, as the name for this child, would have been a statement of God's coming judgment. It says Gomer had conceived again. This time she had a, a, a little girl, and they named her Lo-Ruhamah. Lo-Ruhamah in Hebrew means unloved or uncared for. Imagine the shock every time this little girl was introduced to those who heard that her name is unloved. You see, he goes. God goes on to say... Um, I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. Her name was a second element in this message of judgment. Jezreel was a reminder that judgment was coming. Lo Ruhamah was a reminder that God has turned his affections away from Israel. The one that he chose, the one that he nurtured, the one that he uh, brought through the wilderness, the one that he provided for. He's now saying that they are to consider themselves unloved or uncared for a third child comes along a little boy probably also illegitimate only this one is named lo ami lo ami it means not a people well what does that mean well he explains it right here in verse 8 the phrase that israel used all the time was we are his people and he is our god well, with the name of this third child, God puts a spin on that common phrase, we are his people, he is our God. That was the confidence Israel had that they really didn't have to do anything other than what they were doing because they had a special status with God. They were sort of exempt from having to live a, a, a holy life because they were chosen. And their chosenness, they, they viewed that as a a benefit or as a privilege, but they didn't view it as a responsibility. And so God names this last child, Loami, and he says here, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. And what's most dramatic about that is that phrase, I will not be your God, uses the name, the form of the name of God that we saw last Sunday in Exodus chapter 3, 
that verbal form of the verb of being to be Yahweh, I am who I am. What this verse literally says, and it would have been shocking to the ears of every Israelite, what it literally says in Hebrew is, name him not a people, for you are not my people, and I will not be your I am. Listen, that should have shaken Israel to her core. We're going to find out that it didn't even faze them. And yet God, even here, makes a promise. I want you to think about the three great covenants that that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, The covenant that God made with Abraham, that was a covenant that he would multiply the descendants of Abraham become a mighty nation he would give them such population that they wouldn't be able to be counted like the grains grains of sand on a on a beach or the stars in the sky there is the covenant with moses which was a covenant of god's commitment to his people that he would provide uh, what they needed to be uh, a nation there was his covenant with david that is that david would be the ruler and it would be a descendant of david that would uh, that would bring the people together and would uh, provide redemption someday. The, the Messiah would come from the Davidic line. Well, look at these closing verses of chapter, chapter 1. It says, um, in verse 10, it says, Even when God has said, I'm not going to be your God, you're not going to be my people, you're unloved, judgment is coming, the message through this marriage and these children... In verse 10, God begins to give a a glimpse of hope. He says, Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. You see, he's saying, I'm going to renew the covenant that I made with Abraham. He says, In the place where they were told, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. You see, in the place where they were called not my people, they will be gathered together as the people of God. That's a renewal of the promises that God made to Moses. Verse 10 is a renewal of the promises God made to Abraham, then the promises that God made to Moses. And in verse 11, the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land. That is a renewal of the promises that God made to David, that one day Israel and Judah would be reunited. They would be a single kingdom and they would have a ruler that would lead the uh, unfolding drama of redemption for the whole world. It is a glimpse of hope that finishes with verse 1 of chapter 2, call your brothers my people and call your sisters compassion. We get to chapter 2 and we see a bad choice and God's choice. Look at look at chapter 2. Here's where we're going to outline uh, God's case against Israel. In verse 2, it says, Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was on the day of her birth. I will make her like a desert and like a parched land, and I will let her die of thirst. This is God speaking uh, the word of judgment because of the sin. In the Old Testament, often adultery was... Uh, was used as an illustration for idolatry. 
when Israel worshipped false gods, particularly the gods of the Canaanites that were in the land that they uh, that they came and conquered under uh, in the time of Joshua, God told them when when they after the after the days of Joshua, He said, "Do not intermarry with the people in the land. Wipe them out. Move them away. Don't allow yourself to be polluted." Well. That's exactly what they didn't do was follow the word of God. And as they intermarried with the people of uh, uh, the Canaanite tribes, what happens is they began to lust after the gods of the different tribal peoples that were in the land of Canaan. Eventually, you have uh, the emergence uh, of a god by the name of Baal who became uh, sort of the chief rival to Yahweh. And particularly in Israel, after the the division of the kingdom, Baal became uh, the great loyalty of Israel. And so here God is speaking about that that, uh, treachery of following another God in terms of promiscuity or adultery. He says, you've betrayed the, the, the promises that we shared together. And he says, in judgment, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was on the day of her birth. Verse 4, I will have no compassion on her children because they are the children of promiscuity. Yes, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully. For she thought, I will follow my lovers, the men who gave me food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but will not find them. Then she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. It's interesting. God, as his approach to Israel in her promiscuity, And we're going to see this as you read through the book of Hosea. You're going to see the story of Hosea's marriage play out as a living example of the story of God's relationship with Israel. Uh, She leaves Hosea the same way that Israel leaves God. Uh, God pursues Israel. Hosea pursues Gomer, uh, buys them out of their uh, distress that they've gotten into by their sin shows grace and mercy. It's a it's an amazing parallel all the way through the book. But here God says, uh, she says, I'm going to follow the ones who give me all of my all my food and water and, and all my blessings. In other words, Israel is chasing after Baal because she's wrongfully assumed Baal is the source of of all of her blessings. God says, I'm going to build a wall, a hedge of thorns around her so she can't get to that God so that she'll realize there's no satisfaction in following a false God. In fact, when he takes Baal out of the picture, he says, this is what she'll ha- what will happen. Verse 8 of chapter 2. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the fresh oil. I lavish silver and gold on her, which they use for Baal. God says, I'm the source of their blessings and they've taken all the blessings from my hand and gone over and spent it on Baal as though Baal was responsible. Verse 9, therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and linen which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers and no one will rescue her from my power. 
I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons and Sabbaths, all her festivals. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket and the wild animals will eat them. I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers, but she forgot me. This is the Lord's declaration. It's an amazing description here of what happens when somebody chooses to chase after other loyalties with God sounding almost astonished, certainly brokenhearted, that Israel fails to see the source of all of her blessings and attributes those blessings to a false God that can't help her at all. And God says, so I'm going to take back my blessings so that she'll be confronted with the reality that what she has from the bales is nothing at all. But God does this in, a, in an interesting way. He's trying to, to avoid destruction by using persuasion. He wants her to see what she's doing and to come to the right conclusion. Listen, this hedge of thorns, this, uh, this idea of exposure for shame versus destruction, understand that when Israel in 722 is carried off into exile and disappears into history, um, that was literally the last resort. God spent hundreds of years trying to get Israel to turn away from her sin with less than uh, terminal kinds of, of judgments. The lesson all the way through the Old Testament is the same for us today. When we find ourselves in sin, God doesn't immediately jump to nu- the nuclear option. He gives us first uh, a nudge. Sometimes in our sin, God actually blesses us more. Because the first stage of judgment is God giving us blessings, hopefully so that we realize where those blessings are coming from and we turn to the good giver of all good things. The next step is often that he, 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 he takes away those blessings, but he, he steals our ability to be satisfied in our sin. The sin that seemed to promise such uh, satisfaction, such fulfillment... God makes it so that that sin doesn't really charge our battery anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't get us that rush that we, that we thought it would do. And he does that because that's a generous and persuasive way for us to come to our senses and say, what I had with God is better than this. God has a series of steps that he takes Israel through, a series of steps that he takes backslidden believers through, and those are persuasive steps to try and entice, to draw, to invite home. If that doesn't work, like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, God allows judgment to proceed until we hit that brick wall, until we wake up in the pig pen one day and we come to ourselves and say, how did I get here? It was better back in my father's house. But even that's not total destruction. It's a series of steps that God uses to attempt to invite us home so that we can be restored. 
He does all of that with Israel, promising each step of the way that upon their return, they will find fulfillment. In fact, in this chapter, he uses marriage language uh, to speak about forgiving her of her adultery. Look in verse 14. He says, Therefore, I am going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the days she came out of the land of Egypt. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. You see, that's a fascinating verse because God says, I'm going to court Israel. I'm going to date her. I'm going to, I'm going to woo her and try and win her back because one of these days she's going to call me by my covenant name. She's going to say, this is my God. This is my Yahweh. They had so confused the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal that it had come to be in Hebrew where Baal was a substitute word for the name Yahweh. God said, there's nothing worse than you calling me my Baal. It's as if a woman having an affair calls her husband by her illegitimate lover's name. God should have just wiped him out all at once. But he didn't. He pursued her. He wooed her. He courted her. And he said, one of these days, you're going to call me by my name, the name I revealed to Moses in the desert. I will once again be I am. I will not be my Baal. And when they have that relationship of betrothal, it says in verse 17, I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they will no longer be remembered by their names. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. I will shatter bow, sword, and weapon of war in the land and will enable the people to rest securely. And get this. This is the marriage language. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, in justice, in love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness. And you will know the Lord. Listen, you want a great devotion sometime? Take this, these verses from Hosea chapter 2 and study those words that God uses to describe His relationship with Israel and, and view that in terms of a marriage, a husband and wife that live together in these terms, righteousness, justice, love, compassion, and faithfulness. And a relationship built on those characteristics, this is the result. And then you will know the Lord. Wow. Wow. Verse 23, I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion on Lo-Ruhamah. Unloved will now be loved. I will say to Lo-Ami, not a people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. Well, Chapter 3, real quickly. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, this is Hosea talking, Go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. This is apparently in their marriage, 
Gomer has left home. She's abandoned Hosea to chase after other lovers. She's returned to a life of prostitution. And God doesn't say, you have every right to divorce her. He says, go find her and redeem her out of that life. Now listen to this. It says, verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. I said to her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man, and I will act the same way toward you. For the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. He goes and he finds, he finds Gomer and he buys her back from the man who owns her. He buys her for 15 shekels of silver. Now, to put this in context, when you go to the New Testament and you see that that the traitor Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, what you may not know is that 30 pieces of silver, they didn't just randomly come to that. They didn't negotiate that amount of money. 30 pieces of silver is the biblical value assigned to a slave. Judas sold Jesus for the price of a slave. But what that means is here, Hosea bought Gomer at half price. He bought her because she was damaged goods. She not only had fallen into slavery, but she wasn't even, the lifestyle that she had lived had had wreaked such a disaster in her own life that she was damaged goods. She couldn't even bring full price as a slave. Hosea would have had every right in all of of Israel's legal codes to walk away and to leave her to her fate. But God says, go and redeem her out. Why? Because the marriage illustrates the unfaithfulness of Israel in the unfaithfulness of Gomer. But the action of redemption by Hosea is meant to illustrate God's determination to, to chase after Israel and bring her home. Well, in chapter 4, there's the loss of this love. God makes his case again against Israel. The first few verses. Verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. For this reason, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky. Even the fish of the sea disappear. But let no one dispute, let no one argue, for my case is against you priests." You will stumble by day, the prophet will also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I will reject you from serving as my priest, since you have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your sons. This is a devastating verse, because God starts the chapter by outlining his case against Israel, and then he turns on a dime and says, but you know who's really at fault? The ones who are really at fault are the spiritual leaders who have, who have the responsibility to lead Israel in the right paths so that they know how to, how to behave. Did you see verse four? I mean, what a, uh, I mean, verse six, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Why don't they have knowledge of the truth? 
because the priests, the people with the responsibility for teaching that truth, because you have rejected knowledge. I stayed up last night watching stupidity in the streets of Tulsa. It really wasn't full-fledged rioting. It was just it was just people giving vent to the wickedness of their hearts. In other cities, it's worse. But I had just gotten, I just finished reading these verses, and I just thought to myself, God, America is coming apart at the seams. Is it the fault of the churches? And the men who are supposed to be standing in the pulpits and proclaiming the truth of God's word every time they gather together? You know, it's pretty easy to be kind of pious and look at rioters and looters and sit in the comfort of my living room and say, man, those people, they ought to, they ought to get it. Somebody ought to, somebody ought to bounce some heads off the walls. It's something else when the Spirit of God brings it home and says, why do you think they are that way? We've had multiple generations now in a row grow up in a secular society where the church has retreated to the comfort of its, of its pew-filled, enclosed auditoriums, and we have left the culture to itself and without the truth of God's word being lived out by the people of God on a daily basis without the truth of God's word being proclaimed prophetically and boldly in in, in the pulpits of the land what we have is a nation that doesn't recognize where their blessings come from that credits their blessings to false gods that chases after those false gods looking for satisfaction how long will god continue to say come back come home make your way to me let me be your god as you become my people I don't have much patience for rioters and looters. But I think I should have not so much patience either for preachers and church leaders who have left this country without a compass. Well, In chapter 6, real quickly, listen to these verses, verses 4 through 6. This is God speaking. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? That's a, uh, a name often used as a substitute for Israel. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes. This is why I have used the prophets to cut them down. I have killed them with the words from my mouth. My judgment strikes like lightning. Why? For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice 
the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Wow. You can hear God's broken heart as he says, what am I going to do with you? You see, Israel had the illusion because of the weakness of their enemies. They had the illusion that they were doing just fine. I mean, the religious activities were humming along. People were, 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 were keeping uh, the rules and the regulations. They thought they were in pretty good shape. But listen to what God says. I desire faithful love. It's an Old Testament word that is maybe more significant than any other word in the Old Testament. It is a word used typically to describe God's actions towards us, a faithful love. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated steadfast love. It means a love that is unshakable. It's the love of someone who makes a marriage vow and and for better, for worse, in richer, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, no matter what comes, the vow is unshakable. That's what faithful love, kessed it love, steadfast love. God says, that's what I desire from you. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your, I don't want your religious obligations. He says, I want the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is the marriage where the partner does the chores religiously but never loves the spouse. God says, I didn't give you chores for the sake of chores. I gave you chores so that you could participate with me and that in a love relationship we would share life together. This is the cry of a broken-hearted God. In chapter 7, in verse 3, we see Israel's corruption again. Speaking about Israel, he says, They pleased the king with their evil, the princes with their lies. All of them commit adultery. They are like an oven heated by a baker who stops stirring the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes are sick with the heat of wine. There is a conspiracy with traitors, for they, their hearts like an oven, draw him into their oven. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are as hot as an oven, and they consume their rulers. All their kings fall. Not one of them calls on me. Ephraim has allowed himself to get mixed up with the nations, those that dragged him away from God, those pagan surrounding nations. Ephraim is unturned bread baked on a griddle. Listen to this. He uses this impressive metaphor here. He, it's the image of a baker. A baker would, would stir the coals of the fire until it was a sufficient heat. And when it was hot enough, then he would back away from it and he would take that bread. He, uh, the, the flat bread of the Middle East that they still make today. He would take the dough and, and it was unleavened. It was, it didn't have yeast and he would roll it out until it was flat and he'd put it on the coals and it would, and, and it would, it would cook. And at just the right time, ideally, the baker knows when to flip that bread so that it cooks on the other side and, and it comes off and it is delicious and it is, uh, it's just right. But what God says is because of their sin, they, uh, it, it's like the, the rage of the fire got too hot. And so one side is, is, is cooked until it's inedible. It's, it's burned beyond the ability to eat it. But when they flipped it over, because of their uh, inattention 
to, to living the life that they'd been called to, it, it doesn't, it's not allowed to stay there long enough to cook. So what you have is this inedible piece of something that is burned black on one side from negligence and still gooey and mushy on the other side because it's underbaked because of, uh, 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 of inattention. And he says, that's Israel. Instead of paying attention to the ways that I've laid out that, that will make them to be my people, they, their negligence and their lack of attention has produced something that, that is inedible. It, it's worthless. In chapter 13, we come to the pinnacle of this judgment. Listen to these verses. Verse chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. This is God speaking. I have been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and no Savior exists beside me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. When they had pasture, they became satisfied. They were satisfied, and their hearts became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them. I will lurk like a leopard on the path and I will attack them like a bear robbed of her cubs and tear open the rib cage over their hearts. I will devour them like a lioness, like a wild beast that would rip them open. I will destroy you, Israel. You have no help for, but, but me. Verse 10, where now is your king that he may save you in all your cities and the rulers you demanded saying, give me a king and leaders. I give you a king in my anger and take away a king in my wrath. Ephraim's guilt is preserved. His sin is stored up. Labor pains come on him. He is not a wise son. When the time comes, he will not be born. Oh, man. The last verse of chapter 13, Samaria will bear her guilt. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdoms of Israel, Jerusalem of the southern kingdom of Judah. Samaria will bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God They will fall by the sword. Their children will be dashed to pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. If the book of Hosea ended at the end of chapter 13, it would be the darkest, saddest book in the Bible. It very much, and chapter 13 feels like what we read much later written by the weeping prophet Jeremiah, the book that we call Lamentations. Lamentations is really a book of poetry written during the real-time events of, uh, of the Babylonians carrying um, Judah off into exile, the destruction of a, of a nation, the, the, the execution of her leaders, uh, the Lamentations, the, the, the sad songs of that book. That's very much what chapter 13 of Hosea feels like. And if this was the end of the chapter, we would close the book and we would say God is just and He is true, but we would not say God is merciful. We'd be stuck with this vision of God who leaves us with the image of pregnant women ripped open and, and, and babies stillborn because He has removed all blessing and protection from His people. But there's another chapter. Chapter 14 is the way this book finishes. Let me just read it. It really doesn't need explanation. You'll get the flow after everything that you've seen. Chapter 14, a plea by God. Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. 
Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands. We'll no longer say to the things that we've made with our own hands, oh, this is my God. For the fatherless receives compassion in you. And this is God's answer to Israel's cry. I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them, for my anger will have turned from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. Listen, when you live in the Middle East and you don't have access to a lot of water, the dew in the morning is the primary source of, of moisture for what grows in the land. It's a beautiful image of God saying, I will be the refreshing presence that makes it possible for you to have life. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread and his splendor will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath, beneath his shade. They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, why should I have anything more to do with idols? It is I who answer and watch over him. I am like a flourishing pine tree. Your fruit comes from me. Let whoever is wise understand these things, and whoever is insightful recognize them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. He finishes by saying this. I will not blink at sin. I will not wink at sin. I will not allow it to go unchallenged. But to the one who approaches me with words of repentance, I will restore him to the glory of what it means to be a son of the Almighty God. I understand that America is not the chosen people of Israel. But I do believe that many of the promises in the Bible are applicable uh, beyond Israel to those who stand grafted into the tree of Israel that Paul talks about in, in the book of Romans. I think God wants America to make her way home. I think He wants us to speak the truth, to live justice, to stand against sin and to do it in a way that we remember again where our blessings come from the unrighteous the rebellious will stumble from that message but there will be those who hear it and they will make their way home and we will be his people and He will be our God. God bless you, Evergreen.